now listening to Grace City Portland. We've been in a teaching series that we started a few weeks ago entitled, Are We There Yet? And I think we have a title slide up there. We've been working through the journey of God's people from deliverance to ultimately their their entry into the land that God had promised their forefathers. We call that destiny. And as we've been unpacking uh, the journey and looking at the various stories and the elements and the ups and the downs, we've... Uh, quickly realized, the very outset, one realizes that this is a story of great tensions, that this is a story of not simply moving from point A to B, but it's a journey of growth and, and and of testing and of trials and of character development and becoming the people of God. Um, and it's, it's full of ups and downs and it's not an easy road. But it's a journey that God is, is utterly and, and intimately involved in. And it's the story of our lives. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're interested in that, if you're trying to figure out what that means, uh, take ample notes because this is what we're talking about. Um, some people, I don't know, may, maybe you can subconsciously get this idea in your mind that as soon as God like comes into your life, if you quote unquote get saved, it's like winning the spiritual lottery. All of a sudden it's like, yes, like I'm, I'm in. Like God is on my side, therefore my life is just perfect now. And of course that's, uh, that would be awesome, but not, um, and it would be totally ridiculous because uh, that's just simply not the way life works. Uh, nor the journey that Jesus has invited on, us on works. So that's what we're up to. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you'd like to use one of ours, we have some boxes in the two aisleways here. You're very welcome to, to grab one of those and look on. Um, I don't think it's up here, but I've entitled this installment, this part of our series, uh, Hangry in Scene. Hangry in Scene. Um, so... That's what we're doing, scene, not sin, but the desert region known as scene. I know, it's totally confusing. (laughs) Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 16. Um, We are actually going to look at four categories, and we can go to the next uh, thing there. Missing Egypt, early onset rebellion, full bellies, and forming hearts are what we're talking about specifically this morning. The first two, I'm going to make a few a brief comments on missing Egypt and early onset rebellion, and we'll focus the majority of, of this morning's teaching on full bellies and forming hearts. Exodus chapter 16. Here we go. That should be up there. Starting in verse 1. They set out from Elim, which is where we were last week, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of scene. Okay, we're still in this region here, if you can see the chalkboard, which is between Elim and Sinai, or Mount Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so they've been on the road for about a month now, like a month and a day, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So a month in, they were thirsty, now they're starving to death. Let's go to the next slide. Um, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord." Okay, let's pause there. Missing Egypt and early onset rebellion. Um, 15th day of the second month, 30 days into the journey, as I said, they are virtually dying of hunger. Um, They're missing the Egyptian meat pots and eating bread to the full. Now, to be fair, I don't know how long you've gone without food in the desert. Um, I was reminiscing with my dad yesterday about getting lost in the wilderness, and he told me a story of how when he was a kid, he uh, was like, his car broke down in Barstow, which is some like random place in California, and it was super hot, and they thought they were gonna die, so they crawled underneath the broken down truck to get in the shade, and it was this like big melodramatic moment. It reminded me of when I was in high school, I don't know if you guys remember this, but we went camping, and I brought Tommy Jackson with me, and me and Tommy and my brother-in-law Jim went for this hike, and we thought we don't need a compass, because like, we're men, and so we just, just trailblazed out out of the wilderness, and naturally we got lost, and I remember literally after what felt like days, it was probably like three hours, I laid down on the ground, and I said, guys, I'm done, I'm done, like, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to call in the helicopter, they're gonna have to medevac me out, but I'm done, and that was literally like maybe six hours, and I thought I was going to die. I just could not go on anymore. They'd been out in the desert for a month, 30 days. They had some water at Elim. We've not heard anything about food. Uh, They probably brought some food with them, but they've clearly run out, and so they're hungry. Uh, They are freaking out. Now, It's interesting to note in Exodus chapter 13, if we back up a little bit, the promise that had been made by God to Moses, to God's people. Exodus 13, 4, let me read it to you. God said to Moses, today in the month of Abib, this is the first month of the Jewish calendar, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a, it's a bit of a, a biblical idiom. You've, we've heard this expression, right? Land flowing with milk and honey. 
The, the word picture, uh, it describes a life, a, a place where the land is so rich in resources that it's almost as if it, the, the land just takes care of itself. God's people will, will be like on permanent vacation. Um, they'll have to do some work, but it will be easy labor. It will be fun, fulfilling labor. They won't be fighting against the land. The land will literally be feeding them. It'll be flowing. The animals will produce the milk. The land itself will produce honey. It will be a good place. They will be provided for. They will be full. And now a month in, they're like, yeah, so what's the deal with the milk and honey? When are we going to get there? So they begin to reminisce. about Egypt. They begin to romanticize Egypt. They remember back to uh, not so long ago. Remember, what, remember those meat pots? Mmm. Yes. The meat pots. What is that? I don't know, but whatever it was, we miss it bad. And I want to emphasize this point. Like I said in, in the outset, this was, this was a bit of a side point. But guys, on the journey... If you've made any kind of decision at all to follow Jesus with all your heart, to pick up your cross, to die to yourself and to live for his cause, to live for others, it's going to cost you everything. And there will absolutely come a moment, many, many moments, where you will be tempted, greatly tempted, to begin to romanticize Egypt, to think, man, it was... When did life get so complicated? Because all I can remember is back in the day, man, in Egypt we had meat pots. Of course, we were slaves, uh, but meat pots, come on. And bread to the full. And the temptation will be great to romanticize Egypt. What do they do? They begin to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Now, this is the first time in the story First-ish, second, I suppose technically, if you count like the whole water thing, that they begin to grumble against their leaders. They begin to criticize their leaders. What does God do about that at this point? Nothing. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem to react. He doesn't seem to be uh, offended. He doesn't seem to have a problem with the fact that his kids are starving to death out in the wilderness. And who do they blame? Well, naturally, they blame their leaders. And... At this stage in the story, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. About a year in, when they're still doing it, still romanticizing Egypt, still grumbling against their leaders, this is Numbers chapter 11-ish, it becomes a major, major problem. And God has to deal with his people severely. Romanticizing the past, how life used to be, how it was all so simple and easy and good and lovely back in the day, how the grass was greener back on the other side. You know why the grass is always greener on the other side? Because it's full of cow manure. Amen. It might look greener for a moment, but underneath it's full of, it's, it's BS is what it is. God is taking you someplace, and it's going to be hard. You will be tempted to romanticize the past, but he is taking us somewhere. 
And in the process, he's causing us to become someone. And we'll, of course, be tempted to criticize our leaders. Pastoral advice. Okay. If this means anything to you, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Been there. Moaning about my life, imagining how it used to be, wanting to blame people around me, blame my leaders, blame my spouse, blame them. Definitely blame your pastor. That's for real. Here's my pastoral advice. Okay, as sensitively as I can put it, grow up. Just grow up. Stop. Just stop it. It's, it's how babies act. It's how my kids act all the time. And I tolerate it, but if in a few years from now it goes on, there will be uh, substantial consequences. Yeah? Okay. Let's continue on. So there, there we go. Missing Egypt and early onset rebellion. Super bad idea. If you struggle with it, repent and grow up. There you go. Exodus 16. We're going to skip just a few verses for the sake of time and jump into verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came and came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which is where we get the word manna. It means, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. We'll pause there. Actually, we'll go to the next slide. Now we're going to talk about full bellies and forming hearts. And this is the, I think this is what I really want to emphasize now. Uh, Full bellies. Okay, so we would be remiss not to point out the fact that God feeds his kids. It's a very simple point, but I don't want us to miss it. If you have needs, if you're hungry, if you're lonely, if you're without, God is a phenomenal provider. We, we can't simply skip this bit. God feeds his whining kids. He gives them meat. They wanted meat pots. I can do meat pots. You want bread to the full? I got your bread. When he, he could have said, you know what? I'm a little sick of the moaning, um, and I feel like maybe you need to go to bed without dinner tonight so you check your attitude and grow up. What does he do? Patience and graciousness. He provides for his kids. That's his go-to. And he's a really, really good provider. He gives his kids what they need to stay alive. He's good. But he doesn't just fill their bellies. He begins to form their hearts. I, I would argue that we, meaning like us normal people, typically just want a hot meal, roof over our heads, 
uh, a couple of nice cars. I just want to pay my mortgage. I want to send my kids to college. Like the simple things in life, right? I'm not asking for a lot. I don't have to win the lottery. I wouldn't be opposed to it. <laughs> but I'm just trying to pay my bills and, and have a, you know, just enjoy a decent, moderate life. God, as always, is wanting to do something more, something within us, something through us, far more substantial than merely filling our stomachs. He's after our hearts. This is God's MO. He takes care of his kids. He doesn't let them die in the wilderness, but he is interested in so much more than just seeing us pay our bills. In fact, I think sometimes God will withhold those kinds of things to wake us up, to get us on our knees, to humble us, to test our hearts, to bring to bear the issues of our hearts, because that's truly what God is after. Um, I love the words of Isaiah. It says in Isaiah chapter 29, 13, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment merely from men. Come on. They draw near to me with their mouths because we're hungry and we're really good at giving lip service but their hearts are far from me and their quote-unquote fear of me is in response to the mere commandments of men. Because we know the games. We know what you know, so-and-so expects, and if I'm you know, meant to be seen as a decent religious person in front of my fellow man, as it were, then I, I know how to act. And God says, but I see your heart, and that's what I'm after. I'm gonna feed you, I'm gonna take care of you, but I'm gonna take you all on a journey that's gonna do something utterly fundamental to your heart along the way because that is what God is always, always after. What does God want with our hearts? Verse 12, it says that God, he says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This is the second time God has said this to his people. The second time. The first time is all the way back in uh, Exodus chapter six, starting in verse five. Let me read this to you. Just buckle up, because we're gonna do some thinking here. We're gonna start to connect many theological dots. Are you ready? All right, try not to bore you guys. Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. I have heard the groaning of my people. Okay? This is when they're still in slavery in Egypt. I've heard the grumbling of my people, whom the, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, their fathers, 
and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. What does God want with our hearts? What is he he up to? Well, back when they were in slavery, God spoke to his people. He says, look, I want to take you out of slavery. I want to adopt you into my family. I want to make you my own. I want you to know me. I want you to know that I am your God. But they couldn't hear it. The slavery, the harshness of their lives, the bondage, the sin that they were entangled in didn't allow them to actually hear God's words. And I don't think God was at all surprised. He says, right, I'm going to begin to execute judgment on this oppressive nation that's not only held you in slavery, but that's committed genocide against you. Emphasize even this oppressive nation that wants nothing from you but to merely use you until you drop dead in the desert of Egypt. And God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you out of slavery so that you will know that I am your God and you are my people. Now God's saying it all over again. What does he want with our hearts? He wants what he has always wanted for us to know him, to know that he is our God and that we are his people. You know what we call that? It's relationship. Guys, we're getting closer and closer to the father heart of God. This is what he's up to. This is what he's always up to. He's a God who adopts children into his family. I've never adopted a kid. I know that there's a few of you in here who have, who are in the process of of taking in uh, uh, kids to the foster care system. Um, There will be a significant struggle for those children to bond with their new parents because of the harshness And this is obviously, this is not always the case. Who am I to say anyways? But because of the harshness of their lives, it will be very, very hard for them to know their new parents as parents, as loving loving people who, who want to provide for them, who want to be their healers, as it were. And so there will be a fight to get them out of Egypt. As the old saying goes, you can get people out of Egypt, but it's a whole other thing to get Egypt out of people. And this is what God is up to. These people simply want to stay alive. God, however, is wanting to teach them to become his people. So here's a question. What does collecting weird bread every day in the desert have to do with becoming God's people? This is what the story is about, right? They get the meat. That's kind of like a just because. And then he says, right, I'm going to begin to give you bread. The what is it? The manna. Never seen it before. Super weird. It just sort of appears like dew on the ground. The dew evaporates and it's like left here like it's like frosted desert flakes or something. And they meant to go around and like collect it and they make cakes out of it. They eat it. And they're supposed to do it a very specific way. He says, I want you to go out daily Collect just enough for you and your family, no more, no less, 
Eat until you're full, but don't save any till the next day. Because in the morning, I want you to do the same thing all over again. And then on the sixth day, God says, I want you to collect a double portion so that you'll have enough for the seventh day. Because on the seventh day, you're not meant to collect anything, but I want you to rest. It's a solemn day of rest. It's the holy day. It's the Sabbath or the Shabbat. What does that have to do with anything? Like, is that not just the weirdest thing ever? I want you to know that I am your God and that you are my people, that I'm adopting you, that I'm teaching you how to be my children, how to live in a way that reflects to the world that I am a good God, I'm a faithful God, and I've rescued a people not merely to bless them, but through them to bless the whole world. And that was the promise at the very outset. And so here's what I want you to do. Go collect the weird bread, but only daily. And then on the sixth day, double portion because the seventh day. And you guys, does this ring any bells? Does this ring, you know where this started? This whole six days, collect the bread, seventh day rest. This is the second time that it appears in scripture. You remember the first? Genesis, yeah, that's it. Say it loud. Genesis. Genesis one and two. God worked for six days And on the seventh day, he rested. How bizarre is that? God is saying, look, in the same way that I created the heavens and the earth by working for six days, setting the whole cosmos up for six days so that I could then, quote unquote, rest on the seventh day, this is the pattern of life that I want to begin to teach you. Isn't that weird? How does this teach God's people to know him as their God, the Lord, their God? Let's talk about Jesus. Matthew chapter three, verse 16. You guys doing okay? Okay. Okay, if you're feeling slightly lost, don't, don't worry. This is just, just track with me. Okay, there's, there's loose ends all over the place. In fact, I, I think you're doing pretty good Old Testament theology when you realize, dude, there are loose ends everywhere. Like this, this is just weird and just doesn't really seem to like resolve anywhere. That's where you need to go to Jesus. Okay, this, this is going to make sense. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Guys, this is like the Red Sea, the wilderness, and Mount Sinai all in like two seconds. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know, I've, I've hiked around the Sinai Desert. There's only two things 
in the Sinai Desert, in my experience. Dirt and rocks, and the occasional wild donkey, just super weird. And so the tempter comes. He says, you hungry, huh? Hungry. Why don't you command one of these rocks to become bread? And Jesus answers, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses is recounting to Israel the, the wilderness journey thus far. He's reminding of them of some things. And this is what he said. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 to the devil, when he's really, really hungry, what is he thinking? What's the context? He's thinking about manna. He's thinking about the lesson that God's people were meant to learn in the wilderness, but, by the way, failed to do so miserably. And so now Jesus the new Israel has come on the scene and he's in the wilderness and he's being tested and he's hungry. And the tempter comes and says, why don't you shortcut this whole process? Forget all this mess. Just, just, let's just go straight for the promise. If you are who you think you are, if you truly are the son of God, why don't you command this stone to become bread? Feed yourself. And Jesus thinks, hang on, this is a manna scenario. I remember what happened. And I know that what I'm really hungering for, the sustenance that my soul truly craves and that I, I actually need, it's not bread, because I'm not quite dead yet. But it's every word that comes out of the mouth of my father. Jesus passed the test. He overcame temptation because he was full of a different kind of sustenance. And because he passed the test, he eventually slayed the giant. Think about it. When you're tested in the wilderness, you're in life. It's on, it's happening, it's pressure, it's stress, it's work, it's family, it's money, it's etc. And you're thinking to yourself, look, at I, I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to pay my bills. I got mortgage, I got kids, I'm trying, and you're just, you're just in it. And in that moment, the temptation is to just be like, look, God, like, just give me some bread. That's all I want. I'm not asking for a lot. I just need I just need to feed my kids. And God says, look, I'm going to feed your kids. I'm going to take care of you. You will not go homeless. And I want to say something. As a church family, if you ever find yourself in a place where you have no money, you have no couch to sleep on, I've got two. And I mean that seriously. You will not go homeless in this family. 
Obviously, there's logistical limitations to that. I'm not offering it to everyone who's listening to the podcast. All the two people who listen are sitting in the back right here. <laughs> but you will be provided for. But the temptation is to simply settle for that, to focus on that, to make an idol out of that, to think that's all I really need. I just need to pay my bills. And God says, no, no, you don't. Yes, you do, but no, you don't. I need to give you something more. I need to give you a sustenance that will allow you to overcome this temptation so that in the future you will slay the giants. You will pass the real test. You will be prepared. You will have a strength on the inside of you that's able to withstand real pressure in life, real temptation, so that when the actual tempter comes, and I hope to God Lucifer never comes to like personally tempt me, that would be awful. I would just, in Jesus' name, leave now. I resist you. But if that were to ever happen, if you were to find yourself in such a great position of, of influence and servitude that some demon in hell was assigned to tempt you, would you have the, the girth on the inside, the strength, the sustenance, the word of God, the voice of your father resounding so deeply within your soul that you would overcome that moment and say, look, I'm not just going for the rock to bread moment scenario. I need the very voice of my father to fill me. I need to know who I am. I need to know that the Lord is my God. I get a little excited. So how? How do we do it, All right? Every day for six days, collect your bread, collect double on the sixth day, and then day seven, rest. Day seven is a holy Sabbath. That's Genesis 2. Book recommendation. I rarely do this. The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton. It's about 10 years old. He's an Old Testament prof at Wheaton College, Wheaton Seminary. Um, he makes the argument and I won't even bore you with the details now, but he makes the argument that in the ancient world, if you, if you start reading various um, sort of creation accounts that some of the ancients, you, you can dig these things up. There's, there's manuscripts, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you know, all these ancient people that were living and, and rubbing shoulders with the Hebrew people. They have their own sort of versions of creation. Some commonalities for sure, Obviously, Yahweh was radically different. The God of the Hebrews, the God that we're talking about, stood alone. He was the God of gods. He wasn't a competing God. He wasn't merely an idea. He was the creator God who spoke and the world became. He spoke purpose and functionality into people and creatures and the cosmos and the heavens and the earth. And it became imbued with meaning. It became Reality. He makes the argument that in that ancient world of creation accounts, when a God rests, it's to say that the deity took up residence in his temple, in his 
uh, command headquarters. It would be like, the, like a president who's like spent a year on the, the campaign trail and he's worked and he's labored and he's rallied and he's made speeches and finally he is in office and he rests in the White House. He sits behind his desk ready to now actually rule over his dominion. And he makes the argument that the six days and the seven The six days are the work of of inauguration leading up to Yahweh resting on his temple throne. Isaiah 66.1 says that the heavens are God's throne and the earth is his footstool. Creation is actually God's temple. And when God came to rest on the seventh day, it wasn't to take a nap. It was to reside as God over the cosmos. And this idea of laboring for six days to rest on the seventh, I'm afraid as a, as a modern Western, uh, ridiculously frenetic culture, like busy, 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 nonstop, do we need to learn how to like physically rest one day a week? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's, it's actually, it's a problem. But it's, just, it's not just that. It's not merely learning how to take a day off so that I can just like say a prayer and then Netflix for four hours on a, whatever your day off is. It's that we would cultivate a life and a pattern of living for six days, being in my vocation, laboring, being a mom or a dad or a business owner or a student working in my responsibilities, being the person and and the influencer God has created me to be for six days daily laboring in a way such that on the seventh day, all that I've been cultivating, all that I've been setting up, all that I've been laboring towards is now built up to this inauguration of the king resting in his temple, which is my life and my world and my family and my work and everything that I've been building up to. The seventh day, the day of rest, is meant to be the moment when God takes up his place of rulership in my world. Does that mean I rest like God? Absolutely. That's only one tiny piece of the puzzle. I'll summarize it this way. How do, we, how do we do what Jesus did in the wilderness? Live your life, enjoy God's provision, and utilize whatever God gives you, big or small, to form a pattern of life that is wholly oriented around the reality that it all comes from above. God is the Lord my God. What are the consequences of not honoring God in this way? What if I don't do that? What if along the way I do get distracted by my mere physical hunger? 
What if I forget that God is after my heart and I begin to use him for the stuff that I need to get from him? Because honestly, I just need to get my bills paid. What are the consequences? It says in verse 20, this is back in Exodus 16, some didn't listen and left part of the manna till the next day. And it said it bred worms and stank. What are the consequences? The good thing that God gives you that was meant to provide for you and become a part of your life's work of orienting your reality around sovereign God, king, ruler of your life in the cosmos. If you begin to use the stuff that God gives you, kind of stockpile a little bit, kind of you know, get your little nest egg going, and forget what God is really after and up to, that blessing becomes your wormy stank bread. That's what happens. The very thing that was meant to bless you goes rotten and starts to stink up your life. Uh, what God meant for provision becomes stank maggot bread, that relationship, that career, that degree, that money, that dream, that talent, that ambition, that house, that family, all of those good things. If these things become anything less than a blessing through which we might be a blessing and in that way enjoy the good things that God has given us in such a way so as to display the goodness of God to the rest of the world, which is the purpose of all creation, then those good things will eventually become the very idols that will keep us from entering God's eternal rest. And idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Idolaters don't go to heaven. Okay, this is a serious consequence, church, because within our, not our church specifically, God only knows, but within the church, there are people who do religion week after week, and they tick the boxes, and they have a fear of God that's merely from the teaching of men, and their heart doesn't belong to Jesus, and the very good things that God has given you in order to prepare your heart to overcome giants and enter into his rest, become the things that replace him. We make idols out of the good things that God has given us, and it becomes our stanky maggot bread. And we gotta get it out of our lives. We've gotta call it what it is. We need to begin to orient our daily existence in such a way that we're creating a temple for God to rest in. Does that make sense? Okay. So how? The question still remains. How? Because that's all just really big abstract stuff. Two things. Number one, pray every morning. Jesus, he said, you want to pray? Here, I'll teach you how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. Lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. These are all things to do with our soul. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus said in John 6 that I am the bread that came down from heaven. You know when we're praying, God, give me my daily bread today. We're saying, God, won't you fill my heart with yourself again afresh today? Because what I need more than anything isn't just to get through my to-do list, isn't just to sort of go one rung up on the ladder of life and progression. I need more of you. I need you to help me to orient everything that I do today in such a way that you are king, you are ruler. I'm creating a life that you are meant to rest in. Help me. Fill me with your heart, with your love, with your spirit afresh today. Pray every morning. We pray every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. I haven't plugged it in a while. And we pray here every Sunday morning at, uh, what, 8.30 a.m. Is that right? Yeah. I don't. People do. Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. If you've never come out, guys, come pray with us. It could be the beginning of a, of a new lifestyle, a new daily routine, routine of prayer. Second, meditate on God's word. When God was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 in the wilderness, there was a context. There was a context. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What were the words that had just come out of the mouth of his father? Do you remember? He was baptized. He came up. The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. I love him, and I'm pleased with him. The Spirit came to rest upon the Son of God that we might find our rest in him. And we find our deepest rest when we learn to hear our Father's voice speaking to us in the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit descending upon our hearts, reminding us that we are sons and daughters of God like Jesus because of his finished work on the cross. It's the simplest message application you're ever, ever, ever going to hear. Read your Bible and pray. Every day. Read your Bible asking the Spirit of God to descend upon your heart that you might have ears to hear his voice, that you might be reminded every day that you are my son, you are my daughter. Today I'm going to teach you to act like it. Today I'm going to teach you to honor, to listen and to obey, to not be distracted, not like my dog, you know, the whole thing about the squirrel and the dog. It's so real in my house. I want my dog, I love her, and she drives me insane because she forbids squirrels in our backyard, and that's us. We're just like, what? Squirrel, what? Bread, what? I need, uh, what? Money, I got it. And God's like, no, what you need is to hear my voice. You need to come to the word. You need to hear my voice. You are my son. You are my daughter. Today, I'm going to teach you to act like I am your provider. Today, I'm going to teach you to listen carefully and to obey my instruction. Today, I'm going to teach you to be like me. And then we pray, God, help. Help me. 
Fill my heart afresh with your love. Teach me to obey you. Teach me. Empower me to take up my cross and to follow you today. That's how God forms our hearts. Can we stand together, please?